but it's good to be home and uh, to be with you again. It's it's uh, uh, it's amazing how God binds you together with with people, and and if you're away for a week, you just kind of feel uh, feel like you're just ready to be be home and worship together. So happy to be back here with you all this morning. Uh, Revelation chapter one this morning. Uh, before we get uh, into, we're actually going to be in Revelation chapter 3, but I want to uh, just give you a little bit of background about what, about what we're going to be talking here so we can understand what's being said here, because what we're presented with is John uh, on the Isle of Patmos. He was persecuted because of his you know, preaching and teaching and all of that, so he was sent off into exile, and he was uh, in this place, and he's confronted with Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking talking about here. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Christ. That's what we're talking about when uh, uh, we we get into the book of Revelation. And you need not fear the book of Revelation. There are people that have a fear of Revelation. There are people that have irrational fears where you buy something at the store and the receipt comes up at 666 and everybody gets all worked up and thinks that something crazy is going to happen. There is no need to fear any of those things. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation of our Savior. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about someday more of those things. But for today, I'll talk specifically about, um, in the beginning of Revelation, he starts in chapter 2, Jesus Christ addressing the church in seven, seven different churches Uh, And I just want to look at just uh, the end of chapter 1, starting in uh, verse 12, uh, what John sees here. He says uh, in verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe and reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades." And then Jesus goes on to explain to John what he's seeing. He, in the beginning, he said that he saw one like a son of man walking through these lampstands, and then he saw in his right hand uh, the, the stars. So in verse 20, he goes on to explain what that is. Uh, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in your right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what we're talking about here. Uh, We'll see this again when we get into our passage for today. What we're talking about here is the seven lampstands that John saw in this vision. Christ is saying, these are the church. These are the churches that you're going to be writing to. And the seven stars that Christ was holding in his right hands says were the angels of those churches. Or if you study the meaning of the word, it means messengers, the messengers of those churches. So he was talking basically to the leader or the leaders of these churches that Christ was walking in the midst of. And the first significant thing that we understand about this is that Christ walks in the midst of the church. Now that's significant because he doesn't just, he doesn't just hand the word of God and say, okay, go ahead and do it. Figure it out. That's not how it works. When Christ binds us together as his church, when he brings us together 
under, uh, in his blood. And he, we are built, as the word of God says, as the living stones, the spiritual house of God. That's what the church is. It says then, right here in this scripture, that he walks among his church. That means that he's in our midst. He's in our midst wanting to uh, give us provision, give us spiritual health, give, give us nourishment, to give us guidance, to give us wisdom. He has not left us on our own to just figure this out. He has not left us just with our own power to try to figure out how to make all of this work. But he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And he is here through the Holy Spirit walking in our midst to give us everything we need as the church to function individually and to function together, to function in our families, to function in the world. He has given us everything that is necessarily in his presence if we would seek his presence. And that's what I want to talk about here today in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. Uh, and, and what we're talking about here today is Christ walking in the midst of the church, but the church missing his presence among them. So we'll explain that more as we go here, but starting in verse 14 in chapter 3. Verse 14, the angel of the church in Laodicea, to the angel of the church or the messenger of the church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I have overcome and sat down with my father. On his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, what we see in this passage, the main issue that we see here is the lack of self awareness. The lack of the church, the people in that moment, the people of Christ, the lack of self awareness, their total misunderstanding of their current spiritual condition. You see, these people were in the midst of uh, Laodicea, that was. if you study the history of that uh, city, it was kind of the center of commerce in that area. It was very wealthy. They had a lot of trades, different ways that they would uh, uh, make money. And they were the people were pretty church. The people were very uh, affluent. So in the midst of all of that, the people lost perspective of all that they had in Christ. They lost perspective of where they stood with Christ. Uh, one of the worst things that we can do as the church, as individuals who compose the church, is to lack self-awareness. Not just in our interactions with other people, but Christ, who have no idea where we actually stand with Christ. Uh, the Bible talks over and over of, uh, uh, well, let's go here first. Revelation, uh, back to 3, verse 17, it says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, so what he is saying in that moment is, 
whether these people, they might, might not have said that we, we have wealth, we have all these things, we don't need anything. They might not have said that with their words, but you understand that our actions prove what we actually believe. The things that we do on a daily basis. Uh, A.W. Tozer came up with this thing. He, he called it seven rules for self-discovery. I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but it was something like how you spend your money, where you spend your time, the things that you laugh at the things that you're entertained by. Those are the things that show us what we actually believe and where we stand with God. See, it's not the things that we say. Our words mean nothing when it comes down to it. The things that we laugh at, the things that we spend money on, the things that we commit time to, the people we like to enjoy, uh, uh, you know, the people that we enjoy their company, those things will tell us where I actually stand with God and what I believe. Uh, So the point is in this scripture that Christ was saying, you are saying that you're rich and you don't need anything. Whether in their words or just the disposition of their heart, it was revealing that there was something in them that was distant from God. There was within their heart a distance, a separation from God, where they had no idea that they weren't actually walking closely with God. They had no idea that they weren't in communion or fellowship with God. They had no idea at all. Uh, so there are different ways that we see this through the Scripture. Matthew 7 Starting in verse 21, it says, Not everyone, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do uh, the will of my Father is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then he will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, there are many things, there are many people who do things, religious things, good religious things, but they don't understand that all of these things they are doing are separate from a relationship with God. They are not in a relationship with God. You see, what that first tells us is that we can be deceived by doing good things. Uh, There are a lot of things that we can do, uh, even in the church, even good Christian-looking things to do. There are things that, as Christians, we know what what, uh, specific things are that we're supposed to do. You know, we we can donate money to certain causes. We can uh, serve... You can, you can serve in the church your whole life, but that act alone doesn't buy your salvation. That's what he's talking about here is all of these things that we do, and we can say we're doing it for Christ, but if I don't have the disposition of a worshiper, then it all is all for nothing. You understand, I think we've talked about that before, but every single thing that we do is uh, flows out of worship. Everything that we do that is of eternal consequence flows out of being a worshiper. We can do a lot of things that will last as long as this world lasts, but eventually it will pass away. But we, through Christ, through the Spirit of God working in our lives, we can have an eternal impact. But you see, that only happens uh, in the lives of people who are true worshipers. Every single thing that we do flows from worship. It is the beginning of all things. When we come to know Christ, we first have to be true worshipers. You, don't, you, you cannot be an effective teacher in the church without being uh, first a true worshiper. You can't be an effective pastor without being a true worshiper. You can't uh, effectively lead your children to know Christ without being a true worshiper. Every single thing that you do for God flows out of first having the disposition of heart that is bent towards worshiping Him and glorifying Him in all things. 
So what Christ is saying here is that we have to have some sort of self-awareness to understand that all of the things I do don't buy my salvation, but the acts of the good acts, the moral acts, the, the good fruit of a Christian life is secondary after the relationship with him. When I step into a relationship with him, the Spirit of God dwells within my heart, transforming me to reflect who God is. But as that happens, as I am transformed, I begin to take on the characteristics of Christ. I begin to take on the disposition of Christ, the desires of Christ. And that leads me then to good works. So what he is saying in in this is your good works are not the things that get you to heaven. That, all of the good works that you do, that doesn't mean that you have a relationship with me. The good works come after the relationship. It is always my relationship with God first, my desire to worship him first, and transformation that takes in place in my heart, and then all of the good works that come because my heart is not my natural heart anymore. It's not the heart, the, uh, the sinful nature that I had. It is not that anymore, but it begins to reflect who Christ is. But that only happens when I have a relationship with him. And to have a relationship means that I have to actually put thought into it. It's not something that we just put on the shelf and visit it once in a while, maybe for an hour or two or three a week or five minutes in the morning. That's not how the relationship works. There is not any relationship on this earth that you can operate that way and actually think that you are going to be close to the person. Try that with your spouse. It doesn't work. No, don't try that with your spouse. I'm just making a point in general. That doesn't work, right? You cannot just set relationships on the shelf and expect uh, that you're going to draw closer and closer to the person and know them. It's the same principle. Uh, I'm sure that I could bring Jamie gifts every day when I come home. But if she knows my attention isn't fixed on her, it's not going to mean much, right? So I can do things. I can take out the garbage and clean the basement, do all of those kind of things that you're supposed to do. But if there's not attention, it doesn't mean anything, right? So the point is that is exactly how it is in our relationship with God, that everything that I do, I have to be aware of my current spiritual condition, understanding that I can't allow myself to be immersed in just doing things with God to the point where I forget my relationship with God. That is vital to everything that we do. Uh, We have to make sure that we are aware of our current spiritual condition. One of the things I think when we first started going to the Dominican Republic, we tried to get people to uh, write out their testimony, you know, so they could share it with people. And I think there's so many times that, that it's not necessarily that somebody doesn't have a testimony. If you've been saved by Christ, every single person who's been saved by Christ has a testimony. It's just that sometimes we haven't sat down and thought through it in a systematic way to be able to communicate that to somebody. But the point of that is, the overarching point that, that affects us spiritually is there are so many times that we will go years and years and never stop and think, what has Christ actually done for me? How does, it, how does that manifest? self in daily life? How does that manifest itself, my relationship with him? How does that uh, manifest itself in my job, in my family, uh, with my group of friends? We never sit down and actually think through what is happening in my life and how does that relationship affect all of the things that I'm confronted with on a daily basis? You see, it takes careful thought. Uh, 
to, to have a relationship with God in the same way it takes careful thought to have a deep relationship with somebody in this world. Um, so there are many people that do religious things having no idea uh, that they're not doing them out of an actual relationship with God. There are other people who drift from God as a result of the good things that they've been given. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting at verse 10. Uh, God is talking to the uh, the Israelites in this moment. You know, this was after all of the, th- the things that they'd seen God do. They had come out of Is- uh, Egypt and had been set free and all of that. And, and God's uh, providing for them in Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting verse 10. He says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe his commands, his laws and decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When you have been given all of these things, all of these blessings blessings from heaven, and you build your houses and you have your land and all of these things, be careful to give God thanks. If you don't, you will forget him. You see, the principle of the matter is it is easy for us to get comfortable with all of the things that we have, and then we forget God. I was just in the Dominican Republic and... um, one day we were with, with uh, the guy that runs the mission organization down there. It's just my brother and I with him and one of the other missionaries. And we were driving around with them looking at a bunch of their different projects. And uh, he wanted to show us one that they're going to start working on in the next year, hopefully. But uh, So we go to this village. It was just right down the road from the mission compound. And uh, he takes us up through this village and... Uh, first of all, it's walking through probably 75 yards of mud. Uh, it's just, you can imagine. I, I, I don't know, you know, people in America are so fussy sometimes about how our yards look and how nice they look and all these things, but you can imagine living just in mud. There's not one shred of grass anywhere in this village. It's just mud. And walking probably 75 yards up to this this little shack that's, uh, uh, you know, I had to bend down like this to walk in the door and then stay bent over when I was in the house. And it's just tin pieced together on, literally on sticks. Uh, you know, the sticks holding up the walls are maybe two inches uh, in diameter, and that's about it. And um, when it rains, the, the water, the roof doesn't hold any of the water out. Uh, you know, when I first walked in, there's a living room, and I could probably, standing like this, reach wall to wall. And, and then there was a small bedroom and a very, very small kitchen. Uh, but there were six people living in that house. It was, uh, you know, a lady they knew was the mother of these children. And six people living in this house, there's one bed. And we asked, you know, where do the kids sleep? And uh, the kids sleep on a concrete floor with uh, basically on beach towels. And, uh, uh, you know, there are people in this world that rely on God for everything to sustain them. For food for shelter, they every day they don't know what is going to happen or where their next meal is going to come from. We live in a place where, for the most part, 
uh, the majority of Americans don't have to worry about where, what they're going to eat for lunch today. Our biggest worry is where are we going to go for lunch? But I, I don't have to worry about do I have the money for lunch? I don't have to worry about if my kids are going to sleep on a, on a beach towel on the concrete. Uh, those are not worries for most of us. Whether you, a lot of the things as Americans we say, we say we're poor, it's because we can't afford things we want, not because things we don't, that we need. Now, there are some Americans, I understand, that are very, very poor and don't have things they need. I'm saying the majority have the things that are necessary for life. Uh, But the point of this passage, what he is saying is when you have the houses, when you have land, when you have food, you have all these things in your storehouses, make sure that you are intentional to give thanks to God because if you don't, you will forget him. You're going to forget. You're going to drift in your relationship with God because it's it's the human nature. It's how humans operate when things start to go well for us. We start to think it's because of us. We start to think that I'm doing pretty well for myself. And then we start to think that we don't need God. Now, nobody says that. Nobody in their mind or with their words says, I don't need God. Some people might. But for us in the church, nobody says, I don't need God. But in our actions, we start to become distant from God because I have all of the things that I need. God is saying, you understand, first of all, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Biblically, I don't think you can make the case that there's anything wrong with being rich if your heart is fixed on God. Because God blessed a lot of people in the Bible with a lot of things. But the point is that those things didn't control them. Uh, But the overarching issue is that when you experience blessings of God, you have to make sure that your eyes stay fixed on him. And whether you think we do or not, everyone here experiences blessings of God beyond what we can even imagine. Because if you go to these places and you see these people who are sleeping on concrete floors, that puts it in perspective that whether I can afford some of the things I want or not, I still have immeasurably more than most of these people do in the world. Uh, so the point is to make sure that we don't lack spiritual awareness, that we are constantly focused on God, asking him to discern my heart so that I can understand where I am in relationship with him. I know I've said this before, but uh, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book uh, called The Church Awakenings. It's a great book, but he, uh, he was talking about uh, spiritual erosion. And he said that he used to go to a, uh, a lake uh, a lake house uh, or a cabin with his grandfather every year. His family owned it. And uh, he said every year they would go out to the uh, the, the bank by the lake. And uh, uh, his grandfather drove a stake into the ground. And every year they would measure off of that stake to the bank to see how much had eroded, how much of the bank had been taken away by the storms and the lake and all of those things and the waves. Uh, but he said if we would have not have put that stake in the ground, you never would have known Because some years it might have been just an inch or two of the bank that was taken off by the storm. Some year it was a foot. But the point is it happens so slowly. If we don't have that marker in the ground to measure off of, I will miss how far I am drifting or how far my spiritual life is eroding or being eaten away by all the things around me. You understand that that is why it is so 
vitally important that as the people of God, number one, we use the word of God as our marker to understand where I am at in a relationship with God. Do I actually know him? Is he, is he a significant part of my everyday? Is he everything? Is he the one by which I understand the situations around me in life? When I see situations, when I'm confronted with situations, I make decisions in those situations based on my relationship with God and what he says in his words, the, principle, the principles that he lays out for us. You see, that is the stake in the ground that tells us whether I am, my spiritual walk is eroding or am I growing with God and knowing him more and more. Uh, so as the people of God, we have to make sure that we uh, are self-aware. Asking the Spirit of God to search us uh, and intently trying to understand uh, the attitudes, the dispositions of our heart in relationship to God. Uh, the, the other thing that we understand from this passage is that the people who are discerning or spiritually self-aware recognize that Christ is the source of all blessing. Uh, in chapter 3, and verse 18, it says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. It says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the, by the fire so you can become rich. Uh, the first thing then that Christ says to the church, that under, he's saying understand that your wealth comes from your relationship with me. That everything that you have, all that makes you rich in this world, comes from Christ as the source of life. And we go back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Uh, Peter says to the church, Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And again, seeing that we have in Christ, the risen Christ, a living hope and an inheritance. And then in verse 6, he says in all of this, he's talking about suffering here, the things that we endure, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold. So he lays out all of the things that we have in Christ, a living hope and an inheritance. And the Bible again says that those who are adopted as sons, we who receive salvation in Christ are co-heirs with Christ. Of all the things of God, of all the things that Christ has, we are co-heirs of those things with him. And we have a living hope of laying hold of those things in him. But he says here what it takes to lay hold of those things. He says the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold uh, may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ is revealed. The proven genuineness of your faith. Your faith is what allows you and I to lay hold of all of the things that God has for us. Christ has promised us an inheritance. That inheritance is worth more than we can even imagine. The greatest wealth on the face of this earth cannot compare with the inheritance that is available to the people of God in Christ. But it takes faith in him to lay hold of that. So he is saying here that your faith is of greater worth than gold. Why is that? 
You see, when I, again, we have talked over and over about what faith is. Faith takes intellectual assent, meaning I understand what is presented to me. And then it takes trust. You see, it takes both of those aspects. You cannot separate them. Because I have to trust in what is presented to me. I have to understand what is presented to me. I have to understand the foundation of all things. I have to understand that I am totally destitute without Christ. And when I understand that then, I trust him in that, that he is the one who can reconcile me to God. He is the one who can bring me to communion and fellowship with God. I understand what is presented to me, that I am in need of a Savior, that I have nothing, that I am poor and powerless in everything, And as that is presented to me, I trust him that he is the one who can save me. He can give me refreshment, renewal, transformation, and he brings me the riches of God. You see, faith is of greater worth than gold because faith allows me to lay hold of all the things that God has for me in Christ. But you see, it takes both of those aspects of faith. And the trust aspect of faith means that I have to actually start and think, this is what's been presented to me in God. That I am a sinner in need of saving grace. I need his presence on a daily basis. And the trust says, do I believe this or not? That takes my conscious thought on a day-to-day basis. You understand there's not one moment where we just accept Christ and we're good to go for the rest of our life. We don't just accept Christ and then all of a sudden I have this inheritance that I can never lose, that I can never walk away from. There are things that God wants to pour out in your life today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And if we are not actively on a daily basis acknowledging that I am in need of him and then I trust that and allow him, that means on a daily basis I make the decision that I am not the Lord of my life but Christ is. I make that decision daily. It takes my conscious thought. You see, faith is of greater worth than gold because uh, I lay hold of the daily blessings and mercies and graces of God that he has there just waiting for me and you. It is of greater value than anything we could find in the world. You understand that this is so significant because there are people that will go through their whole lives and never actually stop and think through what a relationship with Christ means. I'm talking beyond just uh, Christ saved me and I get to go to heaven. There are deeper implications for your life than just I get to go to heaven. There's more than that available to you. That's, That's an amazing thing, absolutely. But there are things he wants to do in you now. He wants to do something new in you today and tomorrow, and the next day. And you and I will miss every bit of it if we don't consciously stop and be self-aware and understand and consider our current spiritual condition and what God has for us. The poor become rich in Christ. The next thing is that shame is covered in Christ. In verse 18 again, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich. White clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. You see, it's easy sometimes to fool people around us. It's easy sometimes to to put on this this, uh, uh, show for people around us uh, and and make people think that we have it all together and everything's going well. Uh, 
and we have this deep relationship with God, but you understand that we are fully exposed before God. Every one of us, when we stand at the foot of the cross of Christ again, are fully exposed in every way. There is nothing that is hidden. There is nothing. You understand if we go back to uh, uh, chapter 1, it's, again, it says when, when uh, John saw him, it said that his, uh, in verse 14, his head and hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. When John saw Christ, his eyes were like blazing fire, meaning that he has this piercing view of everything within us. There is nothing beyond his eyes. There is nothing that he can't see within us. But you see, the amazing part about that is though he can see all of the most vile things contained in the heart of every man, he provides the opportunity for the shame of man to be covered in him. Now what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden? We see that God told them this one thing not to do. And they did it anyway. And when God came to to see them in the garden, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we see in verse 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened after they had eaten, uh, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves and made coverings for themselves. Then uh, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees in the garden. Uh, but the Lord God called to man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? You see, in that moment where they disobeyed God, uh, they realized their condition. But you see what is so amazing about this is in verse uh, 21 then. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Even in that moment of their rebellion, the God of heaven extended his mercy to them in providing a covering for their shame in that moment. And we see that even in the New Testament. We see in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, it says, uh, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 3 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You understand that we are all uh, openly exposed before God. He sees every ounce of our shame. And shame is not a bad thing in itself. Ravi Zacharias says that shame is a desperately needed emotion when something is wrong deep within us. Shame is a good thing. We should feel ashamed of the things that we have done. But the amazing thing about that is God sees that and then he clothes us with the nature of Christ. He says all of these things that Christ are with, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, all of the things that you see in Christ, he will take away our shame and he will cover it and transform it with the person, the character of Christ. So you and I in Christ come to him as people that are humiliated before God. I love how Oswald Chambers talks about being humiliated before God. And that is such an intense intense term. When I first read how he phrased that, that was so intense to think that I would be humiliated before God. But you see, in that moment that I finally recognize that I have nothing. I come to the cross of Christ and my natural self is humiliated before him. 
I finally come to the place where I stop trying to do everything on my own. I stop trying to uh, provide things on my own. I stop trying to do things on my own strength because I realize that my strength is meaningless. It is powerless. I have nothing. And in that moment, my natural self is humiliated to take on the newness of life in Christ. And in that, my natural self is humiliated, but Christ raises me up then to become, as his word says, his chosen people, a royal priesthood. You see, my natural self is humiliated, but God elevates me spiritually in Christ. And when I am elevated in Christ, I am clothed in all of the things that Christ is. His compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, all of those things, he raises me up in those things. We can't have a fear of being humiliated before God. That word sounds difficult. And in the moment of humiliation, it is difficult. But there is no place that is greater for mankind to be at the foot of the cross than for our natural self to be totally humiliated. Because in that moment, then, Christ will raise me up to be a citizen of his kingdom, to be an ambassador for him, to be clothed in all of his character. The last thing quickly. Christ gives sight to the spiritually blind. Again, he says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by the fire so you can become rich in white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Salve to put in your eyes so you can see. The people who walk around thinking that they can see but are totally spiritually blind. He says, buy for yourself salve to put in your eyes so you can see. Ephesians 1, chapter 18 says this. Paul prayed this for the church. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. You see, there is some greater spiritual depth that we can see. Even, even if you are walking with Christ in a deep relationship now, there are greater depths of his mercy. There are greater depths of his inheritance. There are greater depths of his power that we can see. And as you continue to walk with him, he will give us spiritual vision to see and understand what is available to us in Christ and what he has called us to and what it means to walk with him on a daily basis. As we close, the worship team comes up. I would encourage you today uh, to be spiritually aware, to not be people that would just set your spiritual life on a shelf and revisit it once in a while but to be people that would desire to know God in such a way that I would uh, search myself on a daily basis, that I would lay myself before the Holy Spirit and allow Him to search me on a daily basis, that I would not be passive in my relationship, but I would want to know all of the things that God has for me, all of the things that He desires me. You understand, again, all of the things that God lays out for us, the principles of God the precepts, the things he wants us to do, the things he doesn't want us to do, all of those things are laid out for us to experience greater and greater freedom in him. If God tells you not to do something, it is for your freedom. If God tells you to do something, it is for your freedom. Now, there are other things. That's not the only benefit of doing the things God calls us to do. But that was one of talking about our personal relationship with God. Everything he tells us, is for our freedom in him. 
to know him in greater and greater depths and to walk in his blessings on a daily basis. If you have a need today, you can come to this side. Nobody will come. You can pray by yourself. If you would like somebody to pray with you, come to this side, and we will make sure that we support you and pray with you. God, we thank you today again for the opportunity to be your people, to be gathered together in your name. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is long-suffering and patient, that you, though you looked on this church and you saw that they were so distant from you, Father, we thank you that you uh, did not just cut them off in that moment, but you spoke your mercies into their lives, telling them that they were falling away and giving them the opportunity to come back. Father, we thank you for your mercies. We pray that as we search for you, that we would find you, that we would search for you intently, not in a passive way, but we would put our every thought into knowing you and to experiencing the greatest freedom that we could ever imagine in you. Father, we love you today. It's your name we pray. Amen.